God bless you all. So good to be with you this morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We've come as far as Luke 15. If you don't have your Bible with you, please raise your hand and one of the elders or ushers will come down the aisles and we will bring you a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, that's yours from Jesus Christ to keep. Um, He wants you to have that this morning. But please don't be shy. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. Very important to follow along line by line and verse by verse as you watch the words of God literally leap off the page right into your hearts. So we have come as far as chapter 15, well, 14 verses 34 and 35, but I thought this morning that we would take a a little bit of a step back and we would get a sort of running start. We'll read verses 25 through 33 again. And the reason for that is, as I was sharing with first service, the Lord just sort of pressed my heart with this, is that this is, um, you know, we think of commandments and statutes of God and sometimes we think of them being as maybe overwhelming or, or difficult. And, and sometimes they can, you know, grieve our heart. Oh, why do we have to this? And, and, I, and the Lord's just been pressing my heart with such beauty and love of, of a protective father who loves his children, who puts these things in place. And the closest thing that I could think to this, and how many of you bowl? Raise your hand if you're a bowler and you're ever bold. Come on, I know more of you have bowled. Raise your hand. You're going to be all right. All right, good. We're all going bowling. No. Um, well, if I, when I go bowling, it's like I walk in and I don't bowl off and they put these things on the sides for me because they see me. Why is that so funny? I, I didn't even get to the punchline yet. No, they're here laughing. I guess they put them there because when I bowl, sometimes the ball ends up in the other lane and that's a benefit to whoever's over there because sometimes it's a strike actually just in the wrong lane. So, but do you remember what they put up these guards? These guards are so good because they keep the ball on the lane, on the path, the narrow path that it belongs on. And the Lord's pressed my heart that qualifications for discipleship, because really that's what this passage is about. It's about the qualifications, I'll get that right, the qualifications of a disciple. And it's beautiful when we look at it with the right heart. When we don't come at it as, you know, strict, Oh, we have to, but we come at it like, Lord, you didn't abandon us. You didn't leave us to wander and figure this out. You're so good to us. And, you know, do you remember as children, as much as we didn't like rules, didn't we crave them? We craved them for love. So often um, I had friends and, you know, their parents were a little more strict than my parents were. And I used to love to go to their house and... I, I loved when, you know, no, we're not, you're not going to be able to do that. No, you got to sit down. You're going to sit and eat dinner together. You're going to do these things together. And, and my mom working two or three jobs trying to make, you know, the ends meet and all that. And just to, I always sat there, you know, single mother like that. I always sat there and I just looked at my mother and I, I, I craved that. I, she gave me the best she could, but I craved that order, decency, discipline. And I think every child does. And as a child and a children of God, how much more on the spiritual things? Let's bow our head this morning. Let's ask the Lord to meet with us because he's here in our presence. Father, we come before you. And as we just worshiped you and will continue to worship you, Lord, we are ever thankful for your presence with us and among us right now. Lord, I I don't assume that everyone here knows you, but I pray by the end of service they will, Lord, and they will know you intimately. God, I pray for those that, um, Lord, have never studied or sat under these words that, uh, Lord, you haven't had the 
privilege or pleasure to have you change and transform their hearts to these things. Lord, you love us so dearly and we love you. We're so eternally and madly in love with you. So Lord, we pray this morning, please speak to our hearts. Let the words leap off the page. Let us get out of the way. Lord, let me get out of the way. And let the bride of Christ receive what the bridegroom wants to give here. We're ready, Lord. Have your way in us. We pray, we ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's children. Amen, amen, pray amen. All right, as I mentioned, we're going to kind of back up a little bit because these are the requirements of discipleship. I think it's really important. I, I think of, um, some of you think of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us a long time, you listen to the church app or on the radio, you know, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount. I always call it what? The Discipleship Boot Camp. I, I, it's sort of what the Lord gave me as a name for it, the Discipleship Boot Camp. If I could give this passage, I know some of you have margins or, sorry, excuse me, headings in your Bibles. Those are written by man. Please know that. Those are not inspired of God. Those were written by man. And yours may say, leaving all to follow Christ. I have in my Bible, I cross that out, and I have in my Bible, the Requirements Discipleship Boot Camp V2. And it's a constant reminder because I don't always pray, Lord, what do, what do you want to say or what do I want to hear today? I pray, Lord, what do I need today? And that's what our faithful, loving Father is giving us. He's going to give us a healthy portion of discipleship of what we need here this morning because a disciple in the Greek means what again? A learner. We're learners. So we read in verse 25, Now, great multitudes went with him. So large crowd gathered. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Pretty exclusive there. And what he's saying is he's not telling you to hate your family members for, you know, no reason. What he's saying is in a preeminent way, put Christ first. Christ should be prominent in your life, number one, and then those other things are added, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you, right? We, we understand that. So it's not, it's, and I'm so grateful for this, it's not a timeshare business with Jesus Christ in my heart. It's also not a tug of war. You, you ever played tug of war? It's, it's difficult. You ever watch young Christians, or maybe somebody's here going through that, that struggle of where you, you feel like you're being torn, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Nobody wins that. You just feel torn inside. You feel broken. You just, you don't, you're not experiencing God's grace, nor peace, nor love in any of it, because it just, you just feel like you can't win. Well, that's, as we sang here this morning, that's not what the Lord has for us. He has so much more better and abundant for us, an abundant life in Christ Jesus. Not a tug of war. So he's saying, look, no, it, it can't, you can't be my disciple. He's, he's, I'm so grateful for this. He's not grammatically challenged. He's not mincing words. He's not holding back. He's not a bait and switch. No, he's saying this is what a real disciple of Christ looks like. There's some seats right here in the front row. Love the front row. <laughs> Sorry, I said, in, I said first, I said, as these seats fill up, I'm like, why doesn't anybody ever want to sit in the front row? Forgive me. Let me, uh, let me I digress. Verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. He also talks about, that's beautiful. He also talks about, 
he also cannot be my disciple, right? So again, he's, he's saying that if we're not willing to die or surrender to self, again, that's, that's a problem. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it, left after he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him. We all know people like that, don't we, in our lives, our Christian walk, where they started on fire and then days, maybe weeks, sometimes even years go on and then they fall away. There's no depth. There's no fire. There's, you know, it's like, Lord, I know he's separating the wheat and the chaff in these last days. But even in my heart, Lord, remove the dross, right? I mean, I'm praying that continually. Remove the dross of my heart because I don't ever want to be a, a, I don't ever want to misrepresent God or be a mockery through my testimony to the Lord. Certainly, I blow it all the time. I mean, you guys know me. You know I blow it all the time. But at the end of the day, I don't want people to mock God because I start, but I don't finish the race. I want to finish the race. You want to finish the race? Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all. Man, under, underline that in your Bibles. No lukewarm, huh? Whoever does not forsake all, then he cannot be my disciple. He describes a life fully surrendered, intentional. And I really think this is good for us to hear in these last days. There is no mediocrity as a disciple of Christ. The aim and the goal is true servant discipleship, true surrendered heart. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Nobody in here has arrived. I haven't arrived. We're not arrived, right? We know that. But the goal isn't to see how much I can get away with. The goal is, Lord, do the work of sanctification in my heart that I begin to look and operate more like you. You know, one of the things that I hope someday if the Lord takes me home before the rapture, I hope one day that those that are gathered can say, ever decreasing. Like if there's two words that I want to represent my, my life and, and the walk of Christianity in my life, ever decreasing, implying that Christ is what? Ever increasing. It's, it's a life fully surrendered. So now we've come to verse 34. Salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how should it be seasoned? Remember, Christians in Scripture are referenced or called salt, right? They're, they're, they're what? They're the salt of the earth. They're distinct. They have a purpose. Um, they purify. Salt cleanses. It's a preservative, right? How many have made homemade pizza? Anybody in here make homemade pizza dough? Some of you. All right, good, good. I know when I make pizza dough, much like you, if I make it, I take a star with water, okay? And I use 500 grams of water. And then I take and I use yeast, right? And I use some type of yeast. Maybe I use, uh, you know, the baker's yeast or fresh yeast, or I'll use uh, active or dry yeast. You know what yeast is, don't you? It's a bacteria. It's actually bacteria. Some of you are like, oh, 
it's a bacteria. But then you know what else you put in that water mixture when you're making your 500 grams of water? I'm giving you my recipe. Here you go. Your 500 grams of water and you take a certain amount of yeast, seven grams depending on humidity, could be five grams. And no, don't do that. It's less than that. It's, it's like 0.7 grams. Don't do that. Be like, this concoction. You'll be like, what did Pastor Matt do? You know, that thing will just grow in your house. It'll kind of pop out. You're like, no, no, it's 0.7. Use less than a gram, and it's depending on humidity. That's not the point. Anyway, back to the point. And then what do I do? I take about how many, maybe 15 to 20 grams of salt. Do you know why I use salt? Because salt stops the bacterial process of fermentation because I want balance in my dough. I want my dough to be elastic. I want to be able to move it so I can roll it out after it's proofed. Otherwise, if I don't add the salt, I've got this weird gelatinous kind of air pockety full that really doesn't work for dough because it, it won't, it'll constrict. If I don't turn around and add salt to balance that out, salt being a preservative, right? What the salt turns around and does is it turns around and it stops the fermentation process, which then allows me to roll out the dough so that my dough is what? Usable. So that it's useful. That's why we read here. He goes on and says that salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how does salt lose its flavor? Remember, he's talking about the Christian. Because we're salt. We have a distinct purpose. If we're not giving the gospel, if we're not useful to the Lord then we haven't fulfilled the purpose that we were created on this earth to do, to proclaim Jesus Christ to every nation, every person. He says, how shall it be seasoned? It's either fit for the land or fit for the dunghill. I don't think he could have been any stronger than that. That's describing human waste, the dunghill, okay? He says, it's not even fit for that. These are not my words, these are the Lord's. But what do men do? Men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. What he's saying in the spiritual lesson of this is that, that spiritually speaking, salt, if it's not being used as a preservative or what it was intended for, it's, if it's not useful, what is it? Fill, fill in the blank with me. It's useless. We, we understand. I know that's hard to hear, Lo. Some of us sit back and go, wait a minute. You mean... Christ is comparing, and, and, and he's giving qualifications for discipleship, that, that if we have someone that claims to be a believer, but they're not the salt, then they're not useful to the kingdom of God. And I know that's, that's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? That's, it's not this lukewarm kind of thing. That It's not modern American Christianity, if I can say it that way. Look at chapter 15 with me. This is beautiful. Uh, he goes on, please uh, circle all before we even read it. Verse 1, you're going to see then all. This is very, very important. Remember, as he's building on this, we've already seen that we know there's been many multitudes that are gathered. Okay, Disciples are gathered there. We read that in chapter 14. Who else was gathered? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, okay? The scribes, all those that are a part of that. We can't miss that, okay? Because that's all in the context of what we're going to read in 15. Who's the audience? But now he introduces particularly two other groups that he specifically calls out by name, right? And he calls them by the name that they would be known by. But the religious leaders are going to call them 
them, like a de- sort of degrading. Like, you ever heard people say, oh, them or those people or that? It's just condescending. It's nothing good comes of that when you do that, right? Because there's sort of these religious leaders had a piety. That's what religion does. It draws men to men instead of drawing men to Christ. Relationship draws us to Jesus. So he says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners. Why is he calling out these two groups? Because he wants our attention to be on those that are in need of repentance. They're, not, they're unbelievers. They're in need of repentance. Okay? They drew near to him. So they're, they're hearing the qualifications you and I just read together. They heard it audibly. And instead of running away and going, wait a minute, Jesus, these things are hard. I mean, you said that, you know, we can't be your disciple if we don't, if we put mother, father, son, daughter, or before we can't be your disciple. You said that if we weren't willing to die to self, we can't be your disciple. This is hard. They don't run away. What do they do? They press in. They press in. Okay? What are the religious leaders thinking about this? Do you remember in chapter 14, the last we left with the religious leaders? There was a man that had droopsy. You remember that? Which means a retention of fluid. So some type of water, something around the heart, the kidneys, very, you know, feeling like you're suffocating because you got so much pressure on your chest. This is what the droopsy would have been. And we're not told exactly. And do you remember when Jesus said, well, what should we do? You know, or what, what do you say about healing this man on the Shabbat, the Sabbath? Nobody answered him. None of the religious, religious leaders answered which was an answer, wasn't it? It, it was an answer. What, they showed their hand. The devil always overplays his hand. They showed the hand. And Jesus looks at the person and he says, you're healed. Because they used him as a, as a pawn. As a pawn. So Jesus says, no, not, no, I recognize the need. I'm going to meet the need. Go, go your way. You're, 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 you don't need to stay at this dinner anymore. You're not going to be mocked. No, I have, I have goodness for you, a blessing for you. You're not here for that. He sends that man healed away that had the droopsy. And then he full on deals with the religious leaders. But do you remember how angry they got at him? How dare you heal on the Sabbath? And yet he, Jesus so gently says, well, did you not water your ox this morning? Did you not do work? Of course you did. Remember that? We talked about that. So keep all that in, in context in your mind as we've been going through this because it says that these sinners draw near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes, what did they do? Complained. That's what religious people do. Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to, to them, saying, and, and right before that, I think it's important to recognize that they understood they were ready to count the cost. That's where these, these sinners were, these tax collectors were, Okay. It didn't scare them off. They knew it was worth it. They knew it was worth it. So in verse 4, we read, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them and does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, you've probably read this passage before, right? Some of you have read this and you've been in your Bibles for years. Maybe some of you, this is the first time you're hearing it, or if you're listening on the radio or online, this is the first time you've heard this passage. I want to step back so you get the fullness of this passage for a minute, so you recognize what Jesus Christ wants us to see. This is good hermeneutics, right, as we look at these things. So the first thing I want you to notice, as we're going to read verses 4 through 7, there's going to be a pattern that God wants us to see. The first one is that he's speaking to or about animals in this case. 
And he's going to say that they're lost, they're found, and there's rejoicing. We're going to go then verses 8 through 10. And you know what? It's going to be a parable, and it's going to be about mammon or filthy lucre, as the Bible would call it, money. Okay? And you know what we're going to see a pattern of? Lost, found, rejoicing. And then we're going to get to the parable, which many of you know as of the prodigal son. And guess, it's dealing now with humans or humanity, okay? And guess what the pattern and the theme is? Lost, found, rejoicing. You see, the Lord wants us to understand these things, that anybody listening, you can't miss God's grace and his intention and his love. All right, now that we have that understanding, let's back back up and read this again, and let's circle these words as we see them, as we're drawn to these words through the Holy Spirit. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses? Go ahead and circle that. One of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Go ahead and circle that. Lost and found. And when he is found it, he lays it on his shoulders. What? Rejoicing. There it is. Circle the rejoicing. Lost, found, rejoicing. What's the spiritual application? Well, let's read. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, sing them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Is it really about the, the sheep? Well, if we read in verse 7, we'll see what Christ is really talking about. I say to you, likewise, there will be more rejoicing or joy, as some of your translations have, in heaven over one sinner. If it was just one soul who repents, there's the first ingredient repentance, right? Then over 99 just person who need no repentance. Why is that significant? Who just came in the multitudes to them? The sinners and the tax collectors. So he's calling it out, that parable speaking right to their heart. What were the Pharisees doing when they're coming? They got, as we just read, they did what? They started complaining, Right? They started complaining. They weren't happy that people are coming to Christ, that people are receiving the Lord. We get to see the motive, motive of these religious leaders' hearts. What was it really about? It was about them. And that's what legalism does. Legalism is the most selfish, self-centered religion on the planet, more than any ideology there is. All the cults are steeped in it, and all the religions of the world enjoy it. Because it's them being Nicolaitans, the idea of lording over other people. And they use religion to do that. As a matter of fact, in the last of the last days, during the great tribulation, which we're not going to be out, we're going to be raptured out, but during the great tribulation, those who are left on the earth, the Antichrist will use a one-world religion to draw the remaining people in that were not caught up in the social dynamic of the culture and then martyr them after it suits his purpose. Religion is never the same thing as a relationship. Religion requires works or you to earn. Every single one of them, Hindu, Taoism, you, you, you can look at Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, you look at parts and sects of Christianity that have come off, that, that now get tied into, you know, whether it's an Anabaptist movement or different things that become steeped in religion and workspace mentality, not to mention Islam or Muslim, you know, that whole 
think is steeped in religion. Jesus is the God of relationship. And it's vastly different. So he goes on to say, just likewise, there was more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. In verse 8, now we're moving to the money and it'll be lost, found, rejoicing. Or what woman, just in case there's somebody out there that's more financially focused, they're going to tune into this one. Having 10 silver coins, that's worth a quite a lot of money in that day, right? That's something you're going to search for in your house. How many of you lift up the cushions and look for the quarters, dimes, and nickels in your cushions, right? Or in your car, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's like an ice cream, man. So if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp. Sweep the house and search it carefully until she finds it. There it is. Loses, finds, or found. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and what? Saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now we go to the prodigal son, probably one of the more familiar accounts to the church or to humans in in, in general. Um, This parable has a parable within a parable, if I can say it that way. Uh, as we're reading, I'll point it out. It's, it's wonderful. We get a two-for-one special here this morning. The way Jesus has did this, it's, it's crafted brilliantly. Brilliantly as you study this. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, I think some of us today in the culture would say, okay. I mean, not probably great. But I think parents or grandparents today, it's not... It's not unheard of where somebody says, hey, I have some little inheritance, and while I'm alive, I would like to see you enjoy it, or I'd like to see the grandbabies enjoy it, right, or something like that. And, and they don't, it's not culturally uh, inappropriate. They're doing it because they want to see the kids enjoy a little something or a trip, or maybe it's a vacation. They go on together as a family as part of the inheritance or something like that. So in our culture, it's not a big deal. In the Jewish culture, 2,000 years ago, this was huge. You did not do this. This, this, the idea of an inheritance being that he is not the oldest son means that he would inherit one-third of the estate. This man has worked his whole life to pull together this finances, including his wife, right, together to have this so that he could provide for the family. And he's also an employer for the employees, the servants, and different things like that. So he's worked his whole life to gather this income. Effectively, it would have been unheard of for a son to go to a father and say, Father, give me my inheritance while you're still alive. It, what Equivocally in the Jewish time, or I don't know how to say it, it would be to say, I wish you were dead. That, that's actually what you'd be communicating, and that's how they would have seen it. Uh, in Israel. That's how they would have understood it if this happened. So all those gathered are, he did what? Everybody would, their mouths would have been opened. To our culture, well, okay, maybe there's a good motive in this. No, no, no. No, definitely not in the Jewish culture. Okay, so he says, give me this one third. Now, what this tells us a little bit about the son is he's not thinking about his parents. He's not thinking about his family. 
Because you take one third of the estate, that means that now that estate has less. And that means that they also don't have a son there to operate and do the work. So now you're down a laborer, you're a family member that way. And you're also down a third of the estate, okay? So maybe he could have used that to buy more cattle. It's an agrarian society. You never know what could happen. Rain, famine, things like that you'd pool your resources and use them together. And that's what the father was doing. So he's basically coming up and taking a third of that. That's a big deal. So he divided them his livelihood, sorry. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, okay, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, the idea of prodigal living in the Greek, it's an umbrella term. It's an umbrella term. And what it means is um, not only sinful, but um, I guess a living that would show no care for the resources that have been gathered. Sort of indifferent to the money. Just frivolous maybe is the right term. I'm trying to think of how to say it in our English. Like just indifferent. Don't care. Just, Just throwing it up in the air, whatever it goes. It also because of the umbrella term, does imply a tremendous amount of sin. And not only sin, as we're going to read on, it's going to speak of harlotry, so prostitution. Okay, this is what this young man's going to use this money for. You know, probably gambling and different things like that. We're talking serious sin things here that it's going to be to the point where he is going to blow a third of an entire lifespan worth of wealth in a very short period of time. And yet the father allowed it. The father showed free will to the son. Very interesting. So he begins this lewd act of sinful living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. So he didn't even have any wisdom to say, well, what if, again, not like today, we go to the Super duper or the piggly wiggly, we can go to the grocery store and get what we want, right? What if you didn't have a grocery store? Everybody in, in an agrarian society always had some tucked away because you could die. There's no other place to get food. So, excuse me, so this, this person is clearly not showing um, any uh, restraint, not even any common sense either. This is just this bad decision after bad decision, okay? So he begins to want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen. He's Jewish. The clear indication of a citizen is now telling us that someone else of the land, a Gentile, that's what we're learning here. It's not another Jewish person, of the country. So he's, put, he's indenturing, indenturing himself to a Gentile. Now, again, to a Jewish audience, what did you do? <gasps> Because the Gentiles were considered unclean and filthy. And, you know, we would never be like the Gentiles. We're a father Abraham, you know, so on and so, fo- so forth, okay? So a lot of looking down, a lot of disdain, a lot of looking down. And so he says that they, uh, they you know, the citizen of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. So not only was he, un- you know, unclean inside his heart with this debauchery and uh, unfaithful living, prostitution and everything like it, you know, um, he's also 
now just ceremonial unclean. He's still living under the law. He's Jewish, so he's not even allowed to be in a synagogue or any place around another Jewish believer because he would have been ceremonial unclean. He's out with the swine because of kosher diet and what have you. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have entertained that. He was willing to give all of that up. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods. Do you, do you know what pods are? Okay. It's, it's, it's pig slop, but more than just pig slop. So a lot of times you'll go to the butcher and you'll say, hey, give me the leftovers for maybe you have certain animals or something, something you want to feed. And you say, give me the leftovers, and you might want to feed that to the animals. This is the leftovers that even like the carcass, the parts of the, you know, things that normally even another human being would never eat. Okay, this isn't just like tongue, right, or something like that, right? This is a different, this is the, the worst of the worst of that. He looks upon that pig slop, and he just goes, man, that is like filet mignon. I mean, that's what he's looking at, like, wow. Or if you're a vegetarian here, that is like a cucumber, okay? I don't know what to tell you, you know, or like whatever that thing is for you. Put that vegetable in there. That is like a, in a piece of asparagus, okay? Some of you are like, no. I love asparagus, man. And he would gladly had filled the stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Because that's how it was in that day. There was no social welfare state. There was nothing like that. He'd gotten everything he had gotten from the father. Nobody was going to turn around and give him financial assistance. He had blown through it all. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was no safety net. But when he came to himself... And that means he's thinking of his thoughts. He's kind of getting alone. That's the idea here. It's an idiom when he came to himself. It means also it implies a humility that he's actually hearing that inner voice in his heart going, what am I doing? He said, how many of my father's hired servants had bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? Now, again, you think hired servants underline that. What's the big deal? What he's really talking about here? In those days, you had servants that would live with you. And they were servants of the house, and they were full-time. And the master took care of the house. They ate very well and, and had a very nice lifestyle under the master that way, okay? But they did. They were entrusted with, with different chores or things around um, the farm or what have you to care for the master's resources. Then you had times of feast times or harvest, right? You sow and then you reap this harvest, right? So, and you needed extra laborers. That's who these are. The father's hired servants. The hired servant is a day laborer. It's somebody who would have been part-time. There's no guarantee of work, no promise to that. He's saying even the part-time laborer who just shows up that day, no previous experience, no, uh, you know, no relationship with the father, nothing. Just somebody that's, hey, I need a, some work today, good in and out. He says even they in my father's house, are treated so much better, and they have more, the bread, and the things like that, than I have right now, looking and dreaming about pig slop, okay, that's, that's what he's saying, that, you, you get the point, what we're, what we're learning here spiritually, this person is broken, some people have, I mean, in our lives, I, I was there, you get to this place in your life where you have to get lower than low. Most people have that like danger, danger, warning, warning that kicks in right about, you know, somewhere here and you kind of go, you know what? Yeah, I need to pull this back, right? Okay, Lord, forgive me. I repent and you get reconciled. Then there's other people 
we, we know them in our lives where they have to hit, we, what is the term we say? Rock bottom. We all know the term. We know what that means. They have to hit lower than low because they're just not going to learn any other way. You know, they just got to, they got to hit to the point of where there's nothing and no one left. Maybe there's some of you in this room. That's what happened. That's how the Lord got your attention. He got your heart. Well, that's what's being pointed out here. There, there is, this is the lowest of the lowest point you could be at. No lower for this man. So he's taking, assessing his situation, assessing what's going on around him. And he says, you know, he starts to kind of play this through. And he says, you know what? He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to perish with hunger. That's his term. He says, I'm going to die. There's no food. He says, I will rise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called called your son. He's basically, he's feeling shame at this point. And in his mind, he's, he's saying, you know what? Being a hired servant, even if my father will take me back just as a day laborer, it's better than when I'm on my own out here doing this. I'm tired of kicking against the goats. I'm tired of kicking against the bricks. He says, I'm just done. I got nothing left. I'm going to die. And there's times in our lives we get to those places, you know. If we're being really honest, some of us before Christ, some of us, even as we're walking with Christ, some of the cares of the world start to strangle out our joy and start to redraw our attention to the things of this world. And next thing you know, we find ourselves in the place we didn't think we could ever be again. Or maybe if you're not saved, you're hearing this and you're thinking, how did I get here? This wasn't part of the plan. I see a snare that was laid before me, and I literally stepped in Satan's trap. I literally stepped in Satan's trap, and what am I going to do now? And some people at this point, like this man, he gets to the lowest of lows. He says, I'm going to die of starvation. If nothing else changes, some people, unfortunately, we know, we've heard, some people come and say, you know, I'm going to take my life. I'm going to kill myself. Listen, I want to be clear because I know this goes out on the radio. I know this is on the Internet, you know, and and, and the church app, and, and I know there's people that are sitting here today. I don't make an assumption about anyone's mental health, right? I, I don't do that. Because there are different things in life that can literally come across you and you don't even see it in your blind side and it can just take your legs out under you no matter how strong you think you are, right? Let's just be real. If that's you, if if you're thinking or contemplating taking off, not only don't do it, but I want you to call the church, 717-461-9050. If you're here today, don't walk out of this room until you and I sit down and we break bread together. Because I love you, and you matter to me. You matter to the body of Christ. You matter to Jesus. He created you with a plan and a purpose. And don't you dare let the devil lie. Because the, the, here's the trap. As though taking your life is going to solve the spiritual problem. It's not really about the body. It's not really about this. This isn't the problem. It's in the heart. And you're broken. And you think nobody's there for you. I love you. Don't walk out of here today. You have a church of believers that love you here. Don't walk out of here today. Call the church. You have nothing to lose. You were thinking about doing that. Why don't you give Jesus, give Jesus an opportunity to 
reach into your heart and change you forever. Because he will. He's done it, and he's faithful. And that's my appeal to someone that's hearing this today or hearing this on the radio because I do believe in those divine appointments. But the son in this moment here, he's, he says, well, Father, I'm going to say I've sinned. You know, I, I have. And I, against heaven before you, there's humility, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, not even one of the regular servants. And he rose, and he, he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That, that's why I want that person in here that's been just beaten up, that's just broken, that's on their knees, they got nothing left, whether you're thinking about taking your life, you just got, you're just, you got nothing left, you're done. I want you to see the response here. Because this is the response of your heavenly father. What we see here is afar off. Now please understand, again, what this would have been in the Jewish faith. You have the religious leaders that are hearing this and they're going, what? You're telling me this mature man, the father, the patriarch of the home, is running after the son that would never be done or tolerated in the Jewish faith. You are ashamed to the faith of Judaism. You are ashamed as a Jewish man. How dare you run after your son like that and make him think that what he did was okay? And, and, and you know, it, because that's how it would have been understood in that faith and at that time, culturally speaking. But that's not our heavenly father. He's not like any earthly father, by the way. Let's just get that right on the account. No. The picture here is we have open arms. We have open arms as far wide and running unashamed. Not holding anything back. Just, I'm going to get to my boy. Because I love him and I need him and he needs me and I love him. And I want him in my life. And nothing's going to stop me. And I don't care what anybody or any, anyone thinks. Reckless abandonment. That's what we see here. It's beautiful. That's how I know that Jesus can change your life. Because that's what, we, that's what it looks like. When you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is what it really looks like. Don't settle for anything less. You're never going to find... Anything like the love of Jesus Christ, the, oh man, I get so, the compassion of our Lord. So he sees him and he had compassion. He runs, he falls on his neck and he kisses him. Just emotion, endurement. None of this, well, I, I, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, I don't know, should I shake your hand? He just literally falls on him and kisses him right on the cheek. I love that. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He puts God first. He says, I've wronged the Lord and I've wronged you. And I'm no longer worried that he called your son. Do you see where this man is at? He recites what he was going to say to his father. But you know what's funny? His father interrupts him. Verse 22, his father interrupts him. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on and put a ring. This is not just any ring. This is a signet ring, the family name, the ring of the family. What is he saying? Son, today you have been what? Restored. You have been restored, son. It doesn't matter what you did. You, you have gotten and asked for forgiveness. You have received it. 
You are forgiven. You have repented. You are in right relationship. Now take the ring, son. Take the Holy Spirit. Take the Holy Spirit. It is the down payment I'm giving you to show you that you are blood-bought and you belong to me and I belong to you and I live in you. The signet ring, you will bear my name. Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim. Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. And he puts the ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Sandals, that shot with what? Peace. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. That's, we're getting the full picture here. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. So remember the multitude that's gathered? Remember all the who? Tax collectors, the sinners? They're like, high. well, they don't know if they high five back then. But they're like high five and they're like, this is amazing. Are you kidding? Lord. And the religious leaders are sitting there going, what is he doing? And they're getting angry. Because religion snares and traps and destroys it kills souls and yet jesus christ set souls free and what else does he do in verse 23 brings a fatted calf why is that such a significant deal because the fatted calf you you only slaughtered the fatted calf for a wedding or for the village this isn't like oh just go and Pull out something extraordinary. This is beyond extraordinary. This is something you would have been raising like a calf, fatted it up. It took seven, eight years, a long time coming to get this fatted animal to this point where it's ready for that special occasion. Please see how God sees a repentant sinner coming to Christ as the most beautiful and special occasion on all the earth. Nothing competes with it. He literally takes the fatted calf and says, slaughter it right now. We are having a feast. And the son's like, well, I don't understand what. Son, you're here. You've come home. Now, before we go too much further and just take that for granted, you know, one of the things I loved about my mother I wasn't saved um, growing up. And the thing that I always knew, and maybe some of you, I knew where home was. Because it didn't change. I, I knew that my mother didn't condone some of the things I was doing when I was in high school, well, mostly college and high school like that. I understand. And I know there were times we didn't talk. You know, things got real. You know, hey, you're destroying your life. What are you doing? But I always knew where home was. I always knew no matter what trouble I got in, I always knew how to turn. And I always knew there's a little short five foot something, one Italian woman like this that I could run into her arms and everything was going to be okay. It was a picture of Jesus for me. It was a real life sermon that God gave me that I could see what it looks like. She wasn't a perfect woman. She loved the Lord. And I got to see what that looked like. And I ran in and but I always knew, make sure your prodigals know where home is. 
I understand 1 Corinthians. I read the same passages you do. I understand there's a time if there are believers in Christ, there's a time they have to be given and buffeted by Satan. I understand that. But also let's be careful to read 2 Corinthians that says when there's repentance, that we're to bring them back into the fold lest they be destroyed. It goes both ways, okay? So quickly we're to... And then... Or sometimes we enable it, which is even worse. We continue to enable the sin, which is, it never ends well. It just never does. But then also sometimes we we turn around and, you know, there's that, it shouldn't be, but it's a shunning kind of thing. And then when they go to come home, there's no open arms. And, And yet you're supposed to be, and I'm supposed to be, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't in any way demonstrate what we're reading in the Bible, that when the son's ready and he's coming with a repented heart, the arms are what? Wide open, the kiss in the neck, it, it, the welcoming, right? It's a perfect picture. You may be the only epistle men and women, men and women read. Your life may be the only Bible that anyone reads. So let's continue here. He says, you know, bring out the best robe, put it on him, right? Put the ring on him, the sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. There it is, rejoicing. For this, my son was dead. Do you see how scripture refers to it? He didn't know Jesus. Now he's what? Born again, as we would say. I'm giving the spiritual application here to the parable, but that's what he's speaking about. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was what? Lost. Circle that in your Bible. And is found. Circle that in your Bible. And they began to be merry. Circle that in your Bible. They rejoiced. Now his older son, here's the parable within the parable, okay? Now his older son was in the field doing, you know, the work of his dad, being faithful to his dad, doing the things he's supposed to be doing. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He said, what's going on? Nobody told me there was a feast today. I, I didn't know they were having a party. I'm a, here I am out in the field working and doing all these things. So he called one of the servants and asked them what these things mean or what it meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father's killed the fatted calf. Well, what's the response of the brother? I am so, I missed you. I am so glad you're home. Praise God, your life has changed. And he's, you know, you're, who do you think the brother's supposed to, in the parable here, the parable within the parable, who do you think the brother's supposed to be? The religious leaders, the Pharisees. Were they excited when a new believer came to Christ? Or were they upset because men were drawing men to themselves? And that means if you're being drawn to Christ, God, you couldn't be drawn to a man. They were angry, right? Let's see how he responds. Verse 28, but he was angry. You see the motive of the heart there? Can you imagine that? A religious leader, a pastor, an under-shepherd, being angry because someone has given their life to Jesus Christ? I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. But this is exactly what happened to this brother. And he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments. I kept your law to the best I could possibly. I did all these things. Father, we may not have had a strong relationship, but I did the chores you gave me. I was a law keeper, or the best of my ability, I kept the law. Sounds like a Judaizer. Sounds like a religious Pharisee. 
a legalist. I've never transgressed your commandment. I'm a good person. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be make merry or rejoice with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, please notice this with me, very important. The son of yours, not my brother, who has devoured your livelihood with your, or with, excuse me, with harlots, wasteful sin, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. You're my son. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Look, if you take one thing out of here this morning, just one nugget of truth, I pray you take much out from the word of God. But if you take one nugget out, remember he's talking to believers, disciples. This is Discipleship Boot Camp, version 2. The blessing of the obedient life is not a fatted calf. Right? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you, if you learn one thing from this parable... It's not about what you can get from Jesus. It's about what he's already given you in the relationship. Because the father gave his only begotten son. And he's given that gift to all of humanity. You see, that brings us to the point of being merry and glad. Because... These tax collectors and sinners, as we read chapter 15, verse 1, they were lost, but now they're found. The greatest thing we can do is take the gospel with us wherever we go. Foreign lands, trips, work trips, and the most important places in our homes. With our spouse, our children, grandchildren. You have the fingerprints of Jesus all over you as a born-again believer in Christ. You have his fragrance. You marinate meat, right? Or vegetables for some of you vegetarians. Again, I want to be, I want to love you. I want to love you right to meat. I mean, I want to love you right to vegetables. That's fine. But you take the meat and you soak it. And you, and you know what you come away with? Something so juicy and tender. You know what that looks like in Christianity love truth and abounding grace more than enough to live out the Christian faith in a heart that's surrendered and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ amen that's what we learn here and that's what we need to do I'd like to have the musicians come forward we'll close there this morning you know and my prayer is is if you're here this morning and you haven't found this abundant life you don't know jesus christ as your lord and savior what are you waiting for i may not kiss you right on the cheek i might i'm not going to promise i won't i'm italian's what we do but my hands are open but you know what that's nothing compared to jesus christ who will love you like you've never been loved
hold you like you've never been held. He who has begun the good work and you will finish that good work. That is a promise, friends. Let Jesus have all of you. Experience him, enjoy him, love him. For he's the purpose of our lives. And our purpose is to walk out of this room today after we've bearing each other's burdens, giving each other hugs, love, high fives, maybe holy high fives, whatever you do. And you walk out of this room and you go out to a lost and dying world full of sinners, just as we are. They haven't arrived yet either. And they're waiting for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be faithful to the purpose. Don't be a legalist. Don't be a Judaizer. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God. Amen?